So let's go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in that same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, well, thank you all for coming to, this is the last Friday night lecture of this semester, and I don't think you'll be disappointed tonight. We've got a really good lecture in store for you. Um, I know some of you might have seen my signs gently reminding you that uh, you really ought to attend these wonderful lectures that we have. Um, so our lecturer tonight is Dr. Gregory Vall. He is a professor of sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. And Dr. Vall has taught at many institutions over the years, including the Catholic University of America, uh, the University of Steubenville, Ave Maria University, and Notre Dame Seminary. At Ave Maria University, where he taught from 2004 to 2015, he served as director of the PhD program as well as the chair of the theology department. And in that capacity, he was known to some of our own faculty, uh, Ms. Gardner, uh, Mr. Shields, Mr. Kubler. Um, and I've really, over the years, heard a number of wonderful things about how good of a lecturer he is and how, how wonderful a teacher he is. Um, so I think you're really in for a, uh, a treat tonight. So Dr. Vall is a PhD in Semitic languages and literatures from the Catholic University of America. His areas of scholarly expertise include uh, biblical languages, the Old Testament, the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch. He has written two books, one published by the Catholic University of America Press in 2013 called Learning Christ, Ignatius of Antioch, and the Mystery of Redemption, and a second forthcoming from Franciscan University Press called Scripture, and the Mystery of Israel, Essays in Ecclesial Exegesis. He has also published numerous scholarly articles in journals such as Biblica, Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Nova Advetera, and The Thomist. So we are very happy to welcome Dr. Vall to our community this evening and to share in his knowledge of the Old Testament. He will be speaking tonight on the theme of the Sabbath precept in the divine economy. So, Please uh, join me in giving a warm welcome to Thank you very much. I'm uh, very privileged and happy to, uh, to have received this invitation to lecture, and I've been looking forward to my visit and to our discussion this evening. I've uh, long felt a debt of gratitude to this institution uh, particularly in my 11 years teaching at Ave Maria, I had the opportunity, the privilege, and pleasure to teach any number of TAC grads, and they were, without exception, excellent students and came to us very well prepared. Um, well, it is Friday evening. The sun has set, and therefore our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters have begun the Shabbat. This is an appropriate time for this uh, topic, which I hope you enjoy. 
It's uh, something I've thought about for a number of years, but particularly in the last few months, it's become quite a fascination with me. Though my wife and children would say the correct word is obsession. <laughs> the Decalogue is the cornerstone of Western civilization. Its pride of place in Judaism is beyond question. And from the beginning, the Catholic Church received it with reverence among the elements of her life and doctrine. The Lord Jesus deepened our understanding of the commandments in his teaching. He fulfilled them in the manner of his life, death, and resurrection. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he bestowed upon us the grace to keep the Ten Commandments. Already in the second century, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon identified the Decalogue as a set of natural precepts, a revealed distillation of the immutable moral law. The fathers of the church teach us that if we would enter into life, we are bound to keep the Ten Commandments according to their literal sense. Or rather, we are bound to keep nine of the Ten Commandments. Somehow, one rogue ceremonial precept has insinuated itself into the Decalogue. This anomaly is the third commandment, the Sabbath precept, which the Fathers of the Church treat as strictly ceremonial and thus without literal moral signification. Furthermore, the Sabbath applied only to the people of Israel and only so long as the Mosaic Covenant remained in force. As with the other ceremonies of the old law, the Lord Jesus had canceled the Sabbath by inaugurating the new covenant. Naturally, the third commandment, like all scripture, is divinely inspired and useful for teaching. But in the opinion of the fathers, the Sabbath law instructs those living under the new covenant, us, only by way of its spiritual sense or mystical sense. Justin Martyr teaches that God imposed literal Sabbath observance upon Israel because of their hardness of heart and so that they would be compelled to remember God at least once a week and thus avoid idolatry. At the same time, the Sabbath precept held a spiritual meaning that the Jews, being a carnal people, never grasped. Those living under the new law understand, according to Justin, that they are to observe a perpetual Sabbath. Justin's notice of a perpetual Sabbath became a staple of patristic interpretation. When the law commands us to abstain from servile work on the Sabbath, it is not talking about physical labor, but about evil works, from which we should abstain not just one, one day out of the week, but every day. According to St. Augustine, 
the Christian is called to observe a continuous Sabbath of the heart in tranquility and serenity of an undisturbed conscience. This patristic interpretation of the Sabbath, of the Sabbath precept, emerged during the first and second centuries when the church had to steer a careful course between the scylla of Judaizing tendencies on the one hand and the Charybdis of Gnosticism and Marcionism on the other. The former treated Christianity as a mere upgrade of Judaism, while the latter would have severed Christianity from its Old Testament roots. So the second century fathers had to deal with these two things at the same time. What the times called for was not simply that the church distinguish itself from the synagogue in a sociological sense, but that she recognize the definitive newness of what she had been given, and on that basis, break free and clear of the Mosaic law. The law was our pedagogue unto Christ, the Apostle Paul had written. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue. When Paul chided the Galatians for observing days and months and seasons and years, he was not declaring that the new covenant would lack external rights. As the parallel passage in Colossians makes clear, it was the liturgical rites of the old law that he was proscribing. The church had received her own liturgy from the Lord Jesus in seminal form. It consisted of the Kuriake Hemera and the Kuriakon Depnon, or Dominica Dias and Dominica Cena. For that seed to grow within the soil of the church, it was necessary to weed out the old observances. When Ignatius of Antioch, early second century father, encountered a faction of Christians who had withdrawn from the Sunday Eucharist convened by their bishop in order to meet on Saturday and observe the Sabbath rest, he recognized a grave spiritual danger, which he met with a theological clarification. Properly understood, Judaism and Christianity were not two contemporary religions, but two major historical stages of the one divine economy, the one divine master plan. With Judaism leading up to the Christ event and Christianity following from it. By the way, it seems that Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch was the one who coined the term Christianity, Christianismos, to serve as the counterpart of the term Judaismos, Judaism, which had been around for a couple centuries. And he did it precisely to lay out this clear uh, explanation of the two. Judaism had, run its, had played its role and run its course, and its ceremonies had grown old and sour, Ignatius's phrase. 
to continue to practice Judaism now that Christ had come and had brought the grace of the new covenant was incongruous. To observe the Sabbath was tantamount to a public confession that one had not yet received grace and was still living under the old law. Ignatius was the first author to draw a direct correlation between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, and one of the few fathers of the church to do so. He explained that Christians, quote, have come to newness of hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living according to the Lord's Day, end quote. Note that Sabbath observance is not simply replaced by Sunday observance, but by a whole new mode of life. The Christian lives all seven days of the week according to the mystery of hope that dawned with the Lord's resurrection. The fathers of the church studiously avoided presenting the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath. As Paul had explicitly taught, the Sabbath was a shadow of the things to come, Colossians 2.16. Nor did the fathers see the human need for physical relaxation as any part of what that shadow mystically prefigured. At most, they would grant the practical necessity of putting aside profane labor for a few hours on Sunday to give time to the things of God. They were much more concerned with the spiritual dangers of idleness and sloth than they were with avoiding workaholism. As for our modern conflation of Sabbath and Lord's Day, into a two-day orgy of football and feasting, they could only have viewed it as an appalling profanation of both covenants at once. The church fathers developed their interpretation of the third commandment in fidelity to the New Testament, and in the process fleshed out some very basic distinctions between natural law and revealed law, moral law and ceremonial law, old law and new law. It is doubtful, however, whether the fathers do justice to the Old Testament texts that deal with the Sabbath. Two deficiencies are to be noted. First, while the authors of the Pentateuch explicitly link the Sabbath precept to God's rest on the seventh day, in Genesis 2, the fathers ignore this link and are at pains to dissociate the Sabbath observance from the order of creation and from the natural law. Second, the fathers overlook the positive pedagogical role that Sabbath observance played in Israel's moral and religious development as the Holy Spirit prepared them for the advent of the Messiah. There are partial exceptions to this, but in large, they overlook that. 
To remedy these deficiencies, we may turn to the interpretation of the Sabbath precept found in the Treatise on Law in the Prima Secundae. Once St. Thomas has set us on the right course, we shall consider some key passages from the Old Testament to increase our appreciation for the role of the Sabbath precept within the divine economy. The working hypothesis I would like to pursue is that the Sabbath has much to do with our human vocation to receive creation from the hand of God and render it back to him. Following Albert the Great, Thomas rejects the patristic premise that the Sabbath law has no moral content according to its literal sense. Rather, the Sabbath precept is both moral and ceremonial. It is moral insofar as it commands man to give some time to the things of God and requires repose of the heart in God, but it is ceremonial insofar as it designates the seventh day of the week as the proper time to do this. Its moral principle is universal and immutable, but its ceremonial dimension is a determination of the moral principle for the people of Israel during the period of the Mosaic Covenant. Under the new covenant, this moral principle receives a new determination, whereby, quote, the Sabbath is changed into the Lord's day, sabbatum mutator in diem dominicum. The merit in Thomas's interpretation of the Sabbath precept derives from his comprehensive and unified vision of law. The treatise on law deals with eternal law, natural law, human law, and divine law. I know this part's review for you. This last division is further subdivided into old law and new law. So divine law is revealed law, old and new. And the section on the old law treats of moral, ceremonial, and judicial precepts. Thomas defines law as an ordinance of reason for the common good. And he teaches that every type of law participates in the unchangeable and eternal law that is the supreme reason. So it's that notion, notion of uh, an, of, of all law being an ordinance or dictate of reason that unifies his whole understanding. So he's, what, what Thomas says is the, the moral, the literal moral meaning of the Sabbath is pretty much what the fathers said was the spiritual meaning. But this is not just a semantic distinction. There are tremendous ramifications to what Thomas is seeing and doing here. Thomas's treatment of the old law is long and detailed, comprising well over half the treatise on law. He makes an extraordinary effort to identify the literal ratio 
of the various laws and types of law found in the Pentateuch. By so doing, he is able to show how they participate eternal law, presuppose natural law, together constitute a coherent dispensation called the old law, and prepare for and prefigure the new law of the gospel. So there's a tremendous new uh, appreciation for the old law here. Attention to the ratio of various laws also enables Thomas to ground the mystical interpretation of the old law on its literal sense. Here we may note an important difference between Augustine and Aquinas. For Augustine, only the spiritual sense of the Sabbath precept is worth expounding in a Christian context. Its literal sense is of no interest to Christians. Insofar as, he, insofar as Augustine refers to literal Sabbath observance at all, it is to note that the Jews kept this command in a carnal fashion. Those few Israelites who lived by the grace of the Holy Spirit, such as the prophets, fulfilled the Sabbath precept by understanding it spiritually. They abstained from evil works, not from physical labor. Those Israelites who did not possess grace observed the same commandment according to the letter, if at all. And this would have availed them nothing toward justification. In neither case does the literal sense play a positive role qua literal sense. This reflects Augustine's distinctive take on the intertwining Pauline polarities of law and gospel, grace and works, spirit and letter. For Thomas, by contrast, the literal ratio of the old law, including its ceremonial precepts, is of real interest because it is understood to play a positive, formative role in Israel's historical life leading up to the advent of the Messiah. So this, this is part of an overall very positive view that Thomas takes of the old law. He starts uh, early on in the treatise. He says that Israel has been given a special prerogative of holiness, and that's why they're given this law, not just because they have hard hearts, as Justin says over and over again. The intention of the ceremonial precepts was not merely to restrain Israel from idolatry, but to induce reverence for the divine cultus. Thomas is just as eager to conform to Paul's doctrine as Augustine was, but he emphasizes different aspects of that doctrine. Rather than stress the polarity of spirit and letter, Thomas makes much of Paul's reference to the Torah as our pedagogue unto Christ. This concept of the law as pedagogue helps him establish deep organic connections between literal sense and spiritual sense and between old law and new law without in any way compromising the superiority and definitiveness of the new. 
The old law and the new law are distinct, Thomas says, not as two species of divine law, but as perfect and imperfect in the same species. In other words, they differ from each other, not as horse differs from ox, but as boy differs from man. Thomas uses this image of boy and man to relate the distinction between imperfect and perfect to the idea of Mosaic law as pedagogue. The old law was imperfect because it brought nothing to perfection, but it did dispose Israel to the advent of Christ and the giving of the perfect law. Lex vetus disponebat ad Christum, sicut imperfectum ad perfectum. Even the ceremonial precepts, according to their literal sense, disposed men to the justifying grace of Christ, which they also signified, but without actually imparting this grace. So you can see this is uh, related to how Paul, uh, to how uh, uh, St. Thomas deals with virtue, where the, the uh, forming of a habit causes acquired virtue, but it also disposes to infused virtue. So there's a kind of parallel here that he's, he's um, using in describing the relationship between old law and new law. This crucial distinction between disposing to perfection and actually bringing to perfection enables Thomas to view the letter of the old law, including its ceremonial precepts, as making a positive contribution to the divine economy, but without relativizing the distinction between old and new. Now, if it is true, as Thomas teaches, that, quote, the sanctification of the Sabbath, insofar as it is the subject of a moral precept, requires repose of the heart in God, end quote, it must have required this of ancient Israelites just as much as it would of later Christians. They were required to have their heart repose in God. And this observation raises an important question. How did Sabbath observance under the Old Covenant help Israelites cultivate repose of the heart in God and thus dispose them to the advent of grace? To answer this question, we may turn to the Old Testament with just a few preliminaries. Scripture and tradition use the Greek word oikonomia to refer to God's master plan for the universe, comprising the orders of creation and redemption. By this divine economy, God acts to reveal himself and to bring creation to its appointed end. The term divine pedagogy which goes back to Irenaeus and ultimately to St. Paul, refers to the specifically educative dimension of the divine economy. 
in the Old Testament, we see God revealing himself gradually, teaching and forming the people of Israel step by step, preparing them for the advent of Jesus Christ, in whom he will reveal himself definitively. Within this divine pedagogy, specifically of the Old Testament, God uses weekly Sabbath observance to instruct and form his people. To see how this works, we must first recall a few salient points, a few salient aspects of man's vocation and of the way original sin would prevent us from living it out. Made to the image and likeness of God, man is uniquely endowed to receive creation from the hand of God, to subdue and make use of it, and to offer it back to him. Man utilizes his intelligence and ingenuity to transform natural resources into man-made goods that enhance human life and further release man's artistic, intellectual, and spiritual potencies. The development of human culture as we know it was triggered by the Neolithic Revolution 10,000 years ago. This great transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture and settlement opened a space of leisure in human life and thus made possible all the works of culture. As long as we're hunting and gathering, we're 24-7 we're just trying to survive, put, put food on the table, so to speak. But agriculture opens a space of uh, leisure. Agriculture begets culture, and culture, in turn, finds its highest expression and its proper end in cultus, liturgical worship of the Creator. In every accomplishment of culture, man faces the most fundamental decision of his existence, namely, whether he works for his own glory or for the glory of his maker. In the priestly creation narrative, first chapter plus of the Bible, the famous passage about the Imago Dei and man's call to fill the earth and subdue it is immediately followed by the account of the seventh day on which God rested from all his work. Although the noun Shabbat does not occur here, the, the verb does, the text implies that man's vocation as created ad imaginem Dei involves imitating God not only in creative work, but in rest from work. In the book of Exodus, the Sabbath precept is twice explicitly grounded on God's rest on the seventh day. By obeying the third commandment, Israel will discover the true rhythm of human temporality, the proper proportion of work to rest, and the conviction that the order of creation 
is oriented to a telos that transcends even God's work of creation itself. Ceaseless labor, labor without a clear telos, is futile and enslaving, whether we work for someone else or for ourselves. But work that is ordered to an end that transcends work is in accord with man's dignity and vocation. After struggling for decades, literally, to discover the literal sense of the words et requievit Deus die septimo ab omnibus operibus suis, Genesis 2.2, according to the Vedas Latina, Augustine finally arrived at a satisfying exegesis, noting that the sacred text says that the Lord rested from his works, not in his works, Augustine says that scripture thus represents God as pleased with his creation, but not as delighting in his work in such a way as to indicate that he needed to make it or that he was happier having made it. God's repose consists in his finding perfect happiness in himself alone. We human beings therefore imitate our creator and partake in his eternal repose when we are made happy in the good that he is, rather than attempting to find rest in ourselves or in any other creature. If that interpretation sounds familiar, it's because it's basically the same one that St. Thomas follows in the Prima Pars. Nevertheless, Augustine could not see how literal observance of the Sabbath, literal observance of the Sabbath, could ever move Israel in the direction of this true repose and true happiness. He could only view literal Sabbath observance as carnal self-indulgence and idleness, and therefore, and therefore found it worthy of contempt. That's his phrase, Epistle 55 doesn't always speak quite that negatively, but sometimes he does. He did not perceive that the literal ratio of the Sabbath precept within the Mosaic law and the whole thrust of the interpretation it received from the prophets was instructing Israel precisely to find happiness in Yahweh their God as it gradually prepared them for the grace of the new covenant. The Sabbath precept is not merely educative, but also remedial. It addresses the specific wound of nature that is the result of original sin. In Genesis 3, the serpent tempts the woman in these words, you will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. The diabolic insinuation here is that God is not to be trusted, that he does not will our happiness. He is selfishly reserving godlikeness to himself. This allegation is profoundly ironic 
There is nothing God wants more than to make us partakers in his divine nature, to make us God-like. That is why he made human nature in his image and created our first parents in the state of original justice. Nevertheless, our first parents accepted the dark insinuation of the evil one, and as the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it, they allowed their trust in their creator to die in their hearts. All subsequent sin involves this lack of trust in God. Fallen man wants to be like God, but on his own terms and independently. Equality with God is henceforth viewed as something to be grasped at. And if this be so, every good thing that comes from the hand of the Creator is something to be grasped at. Insofar as we doubt that God truly wills our happiness and are suspicious of his motives, we feel that we must seize what we want for ourselves before God or someone else deprives us. We do not trust in his providential care. Indeed, we refuse to accept our status as created beings defined by a specific nature. And we resent God's claim over us and his very offer to make us supremely happy in himself. If you want to see that, just look at our culture. All the hot button issues, talk about them with people in our culture. The immediate defensiveness, as soon as you mention, are being made in a particular way, having a nature, being defined by our nature. You don't even have to mention God, our creator. As soon as you say that, people get defensive. In a word, we refuse to receive ourselves from the hand of God and offer ourselves back to him. To trust or not to trust is not a matter of sheer will, of course. Inseparable from the death of trust is the fact that our first parents conceived a distorted image of God. That, that's also a phrase from the Catechism. And thus became fearful of the intimate presence of the one who is goodness itself. They forfeited what the prophet Hosea calls Da'at Elohim, the knowledge of God. And we, their children, have likewise exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This tragic choice of self over God Creature over creator results in concupiscence, the disorder of human desires. Due to concupiscence, we love created things for their own sake. And our immortal souls desperately try to find repose in that which can never bring us true and lasting joy. This condition is what the theological tradition refers to as the infirmity of nature, languor nature, in accord with the many passages of scripture that compare sin to bodily illness. Within the divine pedagogy of the Old Testament period, 
the precepts and institutions of the Mosaic Law accomplish at least three things. First, they bring man's sinful condition to the surface. As St. Paul puts it, through, the, through law comes knowledge of sin. Second, the precepts dispose those who allow themselves to be trained by them to the remedy of grace that will come in Christ. Third, they prophetically signify various aspects of the new covenant. All of this is true of Sabbath observance, which is at the very heart of the Mosaic Law. We turn now to the book of Exodus to see how this begins to play out. And there, this is not an exhaustive presentation by any means. As the book opens, the sacred author describes the desperate plight of the Israelites by the emphatic use of, the, of words from the Hebrew semantic root ayin beth dalet, gavad, the basic meaning of which is to work or to serve. Here's a quote from Exodus 1, 13 and 14, literally translated. And Egypt made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with harsh servitude, in mortar and bricks, and in all manner of servitude in the field, all their servitude by which they made them serve with rigor. It's safe to say that the author is directing our attention to a particular word there. Yahweh hears the groaning of the Israelites and, des- and delivers them from the house of bondage, Mibet Avadim, still another word from that same semantic root. Having delivered the Israelites from harsh servitude, however, Yahweh does not simply set them at large. You're free, go, butterflies are free. <laughs> no. His act of deliverance has a specific telos. He bestows upon Israel a new status and vocation, instructing Moses to make this declaration before Pharaoh. Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I say to you, release my son so that he may serve me. The Israelites are delivered from servitude in order to serve. How is that a change for the better? The difference is, of course, that they are moving from falsehood to truth, from serving within a polytheistic system and under the oppressive regime of a man who acts as if he were a god, to service of the one true God. And to serve the truth is authentic freedom. Israel is both servant and son. By the way, all of this is really found in dense, very dense form in St. Paul's list of Israel's privileges, which was today's first reading from Romans 9. And the very first one is huiathesia, adoptive sonship. And then the fifth one is latreia, service. Kind of giving away where I'm going with that. Think about the word Latreya. Uh, Yahweh has adopted them as his son in order to lead them from one type of servitude to another, 
This is the spiritual dynamic of the divine pedagogy. We get a first glimpse of this dynamic and of the pedagogical role of Sabbath observance in Exodus 16, even before Israel reaches Mount Sinai. So they haven't been given the, the Decalogue yet. Listen to these words of the people as they complain to Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and note how these words reflect concupiscence, a distorted image of God, a lack of trust in his goodness, and a lack of hope, all deeply intertwined. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt while we sat by the flesh pots eating our fill of food. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to starve this entire assembly to death. In response, Yahweh puts Israel on a strict diet of manna in order to teach them trust in his daily providence, so it's daily bread, and to, and to purify their desires, because the manna is, has a delicate kind of bland taste. <laughs> the unique properties of this bread from heaven make it impossible to stockpile. It gets worms if you try to. So as to discourage greed and self-reliance, they have to depend on God every day. On the sixth day, a double portion of manna is provided so that Israel can keep the seventh day as a holy Sabbath rest consecrated to Yahweh. The noun Shabbat finally occurs here for the first time in the canon of Scripture. Thus, even before the Decalogue has been promulgated, Israel begins to learn the proper proportion of work to rest and the temporal rhythm of a life ordered, a whole life ordered to grateful acknowledgement of the Creator. In this way, it is manifest that Sabbath observance is not an arbitrary or merely symbolic ceremony, but one rooted in the created order. Before the Sabbath is imposed as a precept, it is revealed to be a providential blessing and a divine gift. I think that's what, the, what uh, the priest Ezra means in his great prayer in Nehemiah 9 by saying, you made known to them the Sabbath. It was already there. You didn't just declare it, you made it known to them. It's part of the natural order. But Israel can only learn the inner meaning of this gift and experience its blessing by actually submitting themselves to its discipline, which requires trustful obedience. The fact that some Israelites go out on the seventh day to look for manna after being explicitly told that none would be given on that day suggests that this may be a long process. The Sabbath precept is promulgated no less than 10 times in the Pentateuch, far more often than any other precept. We find it in the priestly Decalogue, in the Covenant Code, in the Ritual Decalogue, twice in the Sanctuary Instructions, four times in the Holiness Code, and in the Deuteronomic Decalogue. Clearly, the authors and compilers of the Pentateuch consider the Sabbath precept to be at the very core of the Mosaic Covenant. 
We must make an effort to understand why. We should notice, first of all, that in the various law codes of the Pentateuch, the Sabbath precept is repeatedly associated with three things. Agriculture, the liturgical calendar, which is itself deeply rooted in agriculture, and the sanctuary. Put simply, the Sabbath is closely linked to agriculture and cultus. This leads us back to the Hebrew verb kavad, which heretofore we have translated to serve. The root meaning of kavad is to work, but it also has a range of more specific senses. Sometimes avad means to work the earth, to cultivate crops. It is also the verb used in the Sabbath precept, six days you shall work. This could refer to any sort of labor, but for most Israelites, it would be six days of agriculture. This is implied in Exodus 34. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the time of plowing and the time of harvesting, you shall rest. But Ravad can also mean to offer liturgical service, to worship God in ritual. It's interesting that the, the Latin word cultus has a similar kind of range of, of senses. This is the sense of Gavad when Yahweh tells Moses at the burning bush, when you bring forth the people from Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain, worship him. And also when Yahweh declares to Pharaoh, release my son so that he may serve me. Indeed, the cultic aspect of the service Israel is to render Yahweh is prominent throughout the book of Exodus which is concerned above all else with the telos of the Exodus event. The proximate goal of the Exodus is for Israel to serve God on Mount Sinai, but the long-term plan is for Yahweh to bring Israel into the land of Canaan and plant them on his holy mountain where he will establish his sanctuary forever. That's Exodus 15. The construction of the portable wilderness sanctuary, which dominates the second half of the book of Exodus, the long, tedious part, is proposed as the means by which Yahweh will dwell in Israel's midst and travel with them, as it were, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, ultimately. It is this long-term plan Sinai to Zion, that is placed in, with, with Yahweh going along, that is placed in jeopardy by Israel's apostasy with the golden calf, false worship, but that is salvaged through Moses' intercession. At the book's dramatic climax, Exodus 33, verse 14, one of the most important verses in the Pentateuch, Yahweh reaffirms his commitment to this plan my presence will go along and I will give you rest. So rest refers to the goal. 
This is to say, I will bring you to the place of rest, to the goal of your journey, to the telos of my covenant with you. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Land is spoken of as the place where Yahweh will give rest to Israel. And Jerusalem is described as Yahweh's own resting place. The divine economy will come to its fruition when Israel worships the true God in his permanent sanctuary forever. The various senses of Kavad are clearly interrelated, and their interrelationship is a key to understanding the role of the Sabbath precept within the Mosaic Covenant. But we must be careful to understand this relationship correctly. According to the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, the early chapters of Exodus use the verb kavad to build thematic tension between work and worship. Pharaoh demands work, but Yahweh wants worship. In the end, Yahweh wins out and decides the matter in favor of liturgy over labor. In their eagerness to reduce a complex matter to alliterative slogans, the authors of this comment have introduced a false dichotomy. Actually, Yahweh wants both work and worship, and this is crucial. The book of Exodus views human labor positively, as, as does the rest of the Bible, as an integral element of the service to which Yahweh calls Israel. Under the Mosaic Covenant and in accord with the moral law, six-sevenths of Israel's life is to be given over to profane work. But the sanctification of the seventh day transforms profane work by ordering the whole of human life to public worship of the Creator. Not, not turning it all into worship, but ordering it to worship. The Sabbath precept indicates the unity of work and worship. There is no inherent tension or opposition between them. Human work involves tapping natural resources, recombining them in novel ways, and adapting them to human use and pleasure. But in what spirit does a man do his work? Does he receive natural resources with gratitude and trust, or does he seize and hoard them out of fear and avarice? Is he looking to gain power over others or to participate in a common good? Does he produce and create for his own glory or for the glory of God? The institution of the Sabbath is intended to order human work and the whole of human life to a single telos, the glory of God in which man discovers his own personal telos, repose of the mind in God.
Within the dispensation of the Mosaic Covenant, the weekly Sabbath anchors the entire liturgical calendar with its cycle of feasts and observances. St. Thomas says that all the ceremonies are superadded to the Sabbath precept and therefore sort of virtually part of the Decalogue. So it's really seeing the unity of the law there. At root, the feasts were agricultural, but they became commemorations of God's saving deeds as well. The Sabbath itself commemorated both the creation of the world and, and the Exodus. And if you ever notice that, the, the version of the Decalogue in Exodus recalls creation of the world, the version of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy recalls the Exodus. In other words, both the order of creation and the order of redemption. The ceremonies of Israel's liturgy were fundamentally a matter of receiving the blessings of the land and offering a first portion of them back to Yahweh. St. Thomas explains the significance of such rites. Quote, in the oblation of sacrifices, man bore witness that God is the first principle of the creation of things and the last end to which all things are to be rendered back. That's a very profound understanding of sacrifice. Much better than simply saying, as some of the fathers do, well, if they weren't sacrificing to Yahweh, they'd be sacrificing to idols, so God let them sacrifice animals. In this connection, Thomas aptly cites a prayer of King David, quote, for everything comes from you and what we have received from your hand, we give back to you, end quote. That's First uh, Chronicles 29, 14. There's my quote from Chronicles. During the pre-exilic period, so now we're, we're finished with the, the uh, Pentateuch and we're going to just spend a little bit of time on the historical and prophetic books and, and uh, wrap it up. During the pre-exilic period, Sabbath observance was a mainstay of Israelite life and piety. The Old Testament frequently mentions the Sabbath in conjunction with the New Moon Festival and other feast days. Israelite attitudes toward the Sabbath varied widely. On the one hand, we learn of a devout woman of Shunem who looked forward to the Sabbath as an opportunity to make a pilgrimage to Mount Carmel, where she might sit at the feet of the holy man of God, Elisha. On the other hand, the prophet Amos tells us of certain unscrupulous grain merchants who found the Sabbath rest and annoyance because it forced them to put away their rigged scales and false-bottomed bushel baskets for a whole day. Even for the less ethically challenged, the, the temptation to carry on at least a little business on the Sabbath often proved irresistible. Jeremiah identifies economically motivated Sabbath profanation as one of the main sins that led to the exile. And after the return from the exile, we find Nehemiah dealing with the same problem. Within the precarious economy, this time I'm using economy in the usual sense, 
Within the precarious economy of the ancient Near East, the Sabbath precept called upon Israel to make a weekly act of trust in divine providence. For most Israelites, the Sabbath day was a welcome reprieve from otherwise ceaseless labor and an occasion of religious joy. The prophets, however, had their doubts about the spiritual quality of such sentiments, since the multiplication of holy days, sacred assemblies, and animal sacrifices had done nothing to bring down the crime rate. Isaiah warned that the endless overlapping cycles of weekly Sabbath, monthly new moon, and annual harvest festivals had become an intolerable burden to Yahweh. And Hosea uses a wordplay to threaten that Yahweh would bring all this religious joy to an end. He would Shabbat the Shabbat. He'd give it a rest. But what sort of joy was the Sabbath meant to instill in the human heart and mind? This question, which really is the core issue, what sort of joy, comes into clear focus in the last 11 chapters of the book of Isaiah. This series of prophetic oracles, so Isaiah 56 to 66, the series of prophetic oracles was delivered in Jerusalem just after the return from Babylonian captivity when a first attempt was being made to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. These oracles were delivered by an unknown prophet of the Isaiah school. According to this prophet, the essence of the covenant is to keep the Sabbath from profanation and to choose that which is pleasing to Yahweh. So the Hebrew phrase he uses is to take pleasure in that which is well-pleasing to Yahweh. In this way, even non-Israelites can join themselves to the true God, become his servants, and come to love the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, for his part, promises to bring these foreigners to his holy mountain and to make them joyful in his house of prayer. That's all from Isaiah 56. In other words, a covenant bond is created between God and man when the human will is conformed to the divine will, not under duress, but in human freedom and by the divinely conferred restoration of what St. Thomas calls the due order of the affections. Through Sabbath observance and prayer at the temple, the Holy Spirit bestowed a gift of authentic religious joy and filial affection for the God of Abraham. Not necessarily yet the full grace of the new covenant, but, but a real religious joy and filial affection for God. In Isaiah 58, we come to the Old Testament's quintessential statement on the spiritual dynamic of the Sabbath. 
This is 58, 13, and 14. If you hold back your foot on the Sabbath, so as not to do your own desire on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, Yahweh's holy day honorable, and you honor it by not going your own way, not pursuing your own business or negotiating a deal, then you will find your delight in Yahweh, and he will make you ride on the heights of the land. The Sabbath provided the observant Israelite with a weekly opportunity to turn away from his own interests and pursuits, from doing his own will. It was not a question of denying one's will absolutely, but rather of recognizing the superficial and self-centered character of the desires that tend to dominate one's own will. Uh, think of St. Thomas's definition, his very beautiful and profound definition of prayer in the Tertia Pars. Prayer is a certain unfolding of one's own will in the presence of God. It's peeling back the layers. We take what we find to be our will, we place it before God, surrender it to him. The next thing, until we get down to that place deep within us where we actually want what God wants, we desire what God desires that there's a lot of superficiality and, and disordered will um, prior to getting there. The Sabbath, uh, sorry, um, Yahweh's holy day was a tangible object to which one might choose to turn one's attention and desire. The Sabbath played a mediating role inasmuch as it drew one's affections outward and upward. If the ancient Israelite gave the Sabbath a real chance, treated it as a delight and honored it, his affections were gradually purified and elevated, and he soon found himself taking delight in God. The extent to which some post-exilic Jews actually experienced such a transformation of affections and learned how to practice repose of the mind in God is not to be underestimated. Consider, for example, the Hasid, the devoted one, who speaks in Psalm 116, linguistically clearly a post-exilic psalm from the Persian period. He begins by confessing his love for Yahweh and exhorts himself, return, O my soul, to your resting place. God is the resting place of his soul. Next, he asks what return he can make to Yahweh for all the benefits he has received. And he instinctively thinks first of the temple liturgy, taking up the cup of salvation, calling upon the name of Yahweh, paying his vows in the presence of God's people. But then, recognizing that these rites are all ordered to a self-oblation, he says, precious in the eyes of Yahweh is the death of his devoted ones. 
Here, we glimpse the deep organic connection between the literal ratio of the old law ceremonies and their allegorical fulfillment in Christ. Israel's prophets, psalmists, and martyrs gradually came to realize that the ratio of sacrifice required man to receive himself from the hand of God and to render himself back to God through filial obedience, obedience unto death. The epistle to the Hebrews teaches that this was realized in a unique and definitive manner in the self-offering of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10.10. By assuming, by taking to himself a created body-soul humanity in the virgin's womb and offering himself on the cross, he offered all of creation back to the Father on our behalf. Having finished the work of redemption on the sixth day of the week, that is Good Friday, he rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, Holy Saturday, and instituted the Lord's Day through his glorious resurrection. Thank you.